Our Voices, Our Choices, the gender political podcast of the Heinrich Bull Foundation. My pronoun is cheaper, and I identify myself maybe with the Thai word, Gatari, is mean transgender women in Thailand. I'm also currently running for the Bundestag, and it's looking pretty good. And if I make it, I would be the first trans woman in the Bundestag. Actually, I'm not the only trans person currently in the race. There are several people running. So I might even be one of several trans people in the Bundestag. That would be really historic and super cool. My name is Alba Rueda. I work as Undersecretary for Diversity Policies in the Ministry of Women, Gender and Diversity of the Nation. It is a new ministry in the Argentine government, which was created in December 2019. I am a trans activist. Trans people have fought for important positions in many countries around the world. Alba Rueda is the first trans woman in such a high office in Argentina. Esther Suvananan is doing research on trans people in Thailand and has just been accepted into a PhD program. Nika Slavik, like several other trans people, managed to be elected to the Bundestag. They also appear in films and TV series, and not just as supporting actors. Series like Pose, Transparent, and Tales of the City are explicitly about their stories. They fight to compete in the Olympics and to referee soccer games. However, those who are assigned a gender at birth and realize in the course of their lives that this assigned gender does not fit, still face discrimination, structural oppression, and even physical violence. In the first episode of the Our Voices, Our Choices podcast series, various politicians, scholars, and activists made clear how violent the binary narrative of only two genders, man and woman, has been around the world. As a narrative rooted in the European Christian imagination, it has been exported to the farthest corners of the planet and has destroyed a multitude of diverse gender narratives. Franco-Brazilian journalist and scholar Manuela Pique emphasizes that it is always a matter of male hegemony. From Europe, this was imposed on other cultures as supposedly modern and, above all, as the only correct narrative. Well, there are many things, because the male gaze is the Christian gaze, is the European gaze, is the modern gaze, right? And that's where the male, what we call the male gaze is often held by females too, right? It's, it's just the reinforcement of a certain social order and therefore a certain inequality. So the male gaze is present when European colonizers arrive in the Americas and are unable to read local forms of government local lifeways, unable, unwilling, right? It's a mix of various things. They can't decipher what does not look like them. Hmm? Uh, they cannot decipher forms of government, forms of accountability that they have never experienced. But they also in come imposing this Christian male gaze upon local communities. And so if they see what they think are men behaving as what they think is female woman behavior, then it's out of line and it's a ground for sodomy, right? And for destruction and appropriation. But in that male gaze, what we get is that we get the imposition, we get massacres, 
because they're all sodomites. We get the imposition of a certain social order with family, reproductive sex, property. But we also get erasure, right? So we have many diverse worlds that were erased because they were not seen by Europeans. In this second installment, we now look specifically at the lives and struggles of transgender people around the world, always mindful that their current struggles are shaped by a Eurocentric, white, binary, cis, heteronormative understanding of gender and sexuality, which they are fighting back against. And in these 500 years of genocide, many of these lifeways have disappeared. Many of the world words have disappeared. So we have some survivors. The Maori talk about the takatapui, which is an intimate friendship that can be sexual, right? In Hawaii language, you have the mahu, who are both male and female. In Yucatan, Mexico, you have the mushes, who are not men nor women, but a third gender. And I would even say that in some European contexts where you have some surviving or the fringes of Europe, you have some survivance of this, right? The, the northern Albanian mountains have this phenomenon of women who decide to be men either because there are no sons in the family, in a patriarchal society, therefore the family will lose property. So one of the daughters becomes the son of the family. And you can see how gender is something that is performed. It has nothing to do with biology, right? And the hijras in India, I mean, we can go throughout the world, throughout pre-European conquests languages and find it. And what is fascinating to look into the Amazon is that you see these isolated languages like Tikuna that have words for sexualities that are pre-conquest. And then you realize there's nothing modern about LGBT, you know, same-sex, queer behaviors It has always existed, and there have long been words for that. Just as it is not possible to compare the very different realities of life stemming from India, Europe, or Mexico mentioned above, the lives of trans people worldwide cannot be lumped together either, as Bodhi Ashton points out, who, as an Australian researcher, is primarily concerned with German queer history. As with any community, the queer community has its own issues to face. And some of that is the fact that as much as queer people have been very often on the margins and very often excluded by a society at large, those power dynamics can also be reflected within the smaller community, the queer community itself. And I think that's definitely something that must be addressed. There are certainly ideas, uh, very normative ideas as to what constitutes being a queer person. So it is not uncommon. We have seen many examples, unfortunately, in in recent times of various strands and various segments of the queer community being effectively victimised by others, basically for the benefit of one segment over another. In particular, I think one of the great challenges that we face at the moment is with regards to the transgender community, But also there is very much this sense of sort of a very white, very Eurocentric baseline there that when I start talking here about a transgender community, I'm at great danger of starting to talk about the transgender experience, which is not the same from person to person and place to place. 
so obviously the the way that a white young German in 2021 might experience being transgender or even using the term transgender may be very different from that which might be experienced by, let's say, an older person in an indigenous community in Australia, let's, let's say. Or even here when looking at people from different backgrounds within this very country, we, you know, people who theoretically should have the same sort of experience, but because of their backgrounds do not. Um, there is a whole heap of diversity here and a whole heap of different experiences that must be addressed and understood. And I think that that's one of those sort of self-critical points that we really need to address very, very closely. It's certainly something that I'm aware of with my own research here that I don't want to immediately fall into that sort of white Eurocentric baseline or from my own background, then trying to apply that to my research. So it's definitely one of those continuing challenges. Absolutely. I think the Thai officials, they are really like very traditional. If you, you are work higher for, for be a teacher, I mean, maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, we are not allowed to be a teacher, not allowed to be a teacher. But I think nowadays it depends on your personality. If you are look quite passing, you look past. So it's okay. It's okay to be a teacher. I think Qatar people, trans people, always get determinations from, from the Thai bureaucracy. I mean, daily life is fine, but when we have to um, connect to the official, we always have a problem. However, what all the trans people I've spoken to tell me is that the more they conform to the binary gender model, the easier it is for them. All three trans women, Alba Reda in Argentina, Nika Slavic in Germany, and Esther Suvananan in Thailand find it easier to get through everyday life the more they are read as unambiguously female when they pass, so to speak, and go by unrecognized. Also das ist auch das, was ich meinte mit dem diesen Druck, dass man dann selbst wenn man trans ist, dass man aber trotzdem That is also what I meant by this pressure that even if you are trans, you are still somehow not recognizable as trans. So that is this passing. Of course, one would like to be addressed in the gender with which one identifies. But for many, it is also simply out of fear that they will otherwise become victims of violence. When people wonder and can't directly classify a person or which gender the person belongs to, then this leads pretty quickly to stupid remarks. Or someone harasses you and says, hey, are you a man? Are you a woman? And then there are insults and, in the worst case, violence. And this is unfortunately still very widespread. I can still remember, by now I have become more relaxed about these things. But a few years ago, I really didn't dare to leave the house without makeup, because I was always afraid that I would be misread, that people would think I was a man in women's clothing, insult me, or in the worst case, attack me physically. And that is a fear that is still very, very real for many trans people. Immer noch sehr, sehr real ist für viele um, trans Personen. Elementary rights of self-determination are essential to the struggle for protection and a dignified life. This begins with the self-designation, which in the case of Alba and Esther, is achieved through the appropriation of a word that formerly had negative connotations. In Argentina, 
the transvestite was used in a pejorative sense, just as in Thailand, with the word katoi. Trans women have now appropriated these terms. For Nikkei, on the other hand, it is important that we do not speak of transsexuals. Ja, ähm, es gibt halt aus verschiedenen Gesichtspunkten Kritik an dieser Bezeichnung transsexuell. Yes, there is criticism of this transsexual label from different points of view. First of all, of the name itself. Because we say it has nothing to do with sexuality, but it is about our gender, about our gender experience, feeling and identity. That's why there are a lot of people who prefer the term either transgender or transident as a shorthand for identity. And actually the even bigger criticism is that transsexuality is the term that comes from psychiatry. That is the psychiatric diagnosis of transsexualism, which was then diagnosed as a mental disorder and still is in Germany. And we are actually far enough along to say that being trans is not an illness, but a very normal variation of human existence. Being human is incredibly multifaceted, incredibly diverse and manifold. And historically, there's an idea that there are only two genders. But this is mainly a European, German idea. So not every culture, every country has this idea of gender that we have historically. We have this historical man-woman concept and the idea that people are born into this gender, that is, into one of the binary genders, and that's who they are. But the world is much more multifaceted and much more complex. Aber die Welt ist halt viel facettenreicher und viel, viel komplexer. This is one of the reasons why Nika and many other politicians and activists are fighting for the abolition of the transsexual law, as it is still called in Germany, and its replacement by a self-determination law. Although the federal constitutional court has already overturned the outdated law, abbreviated TSG, in parts as unconstitutional, there are still parties that cling to it. What the Greens have put forward, the FDP has also introduced a similar bill, and the left party also supports the bills. Both laws are about stronger protections for the human rights of trans, intersex and non-binary people, because this is still very difficult in Germany. If you are trans and want to be recognized accordingly, legally change the so-called passport gender, change the gender entry and first name, this comes with very, very high hurdles. You have to go to therapy, even though the World Health Organization removed transsexuality from the list of mental illnesses in 2018. For comparison, Homosexuality was on this list of mental illnesses until 1990. Bisexuality used to be on there too. And that has now been removed. But in Germany, we are still treated as mentally ill by the constitutional state. We have to present several psychiatric assessments, face an expensive court proceeding, and that usually takes several years. This is very stressful for those affected and is an extremely discriminatory experience. There are many, many countries that have also said that this no longer corresponds to the current times, that this is discriminatory, that this is simply not compatible with the human rights situation. This has been confirmed by various bodies at the European and international level, like the World Health Organization. And accordingly, many other countries already have this kind of self-determination law. In Europe alone, that's the case in Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Ireland, Greece, Portugal, Luxembourg, and those are just the ones that currently cross my mind. That's not even all of them. And in Germany, 
This is an issue that we've been talking about for a long, long time. Alle und in Deutschland ist das ein Thema, über das wir schon lange, lange reden. Beyond Europe, Argentina is also at the top of the list in terms of progressive legislation. Same-sex marriage was introduced as early as 2010, while in Germany it took until 2017. In 2013, an Argentine child was able to change its gender identity for the first time. The first time in the world. There was even already a quota for trans people, which Alba Reda and her fellow campaigners have fought for. If we look at Argentina today with same-sex marriage, the gender identity law or the trans quota, that's a big contrast to the struggles and the situation of all the preceding decades. The trans quota is a very effective tool to fight structural inequality. A fundamental problem is that trans often don't get job offers, don't get the opportunity to work. And that's what this law directly addresses. Since we've been in government, we've been able to triple the number of workers who are trans. That means we're really addressing basic economic needs and rights with our work. The ability to have a job, to be able to support yourself, that's a prerequisite for even talking about equality. In the past, prostitution was often the only way for many trans people to support themselves. This has at least already improved through the trans quota. But even in Argentina, there's still a lot to do to prevent the oppression and discrimination of trans people, something Albareda tirelessly emphasizes. In Thailand, Esther reports that although there are cultural spaces in cities, especially for young trans women, and there is also a provision in the constitution that should protect people with other gender identities from discrimination, otherwise, same-sex marriage and other rights still remain unavailable. Even we are so progressive in our society, we can I can live like this openly. Yeah, Catholic people can live openly, but in the regular context, we we cannot change anything. Yeah, and we have not the gender recognition, right, or same sex marriage. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the in the law context, we are quite not progressive at the social context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For, for Catholic people, we are fear of jobless. We are also fear of poverty. We are fear of like future life because when we are older, our life is 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 harder than than women to to live. Yeah. In order to transform her future and the future of other trans people in Thailand, Esther is researching the history of Katoi people. She has started a personal archive, which she, in the future, wants to fill with the life stories of Katoi, on the one hand, to increase their visibility, and on the other hand, to supplement the one-dimensional story being told. I began with my personal archive because the Thai history or the Thai archive is very overshadowed by the Thai elite. We have to learn the history about the king history. Mostly it's really Thai elite, read the important person, a man, a man history. We really like a diversity of history. I try to build it from, from my personal story, from my personal archive. In her lectures, Esther talks about the time before Thailand became a nation state, when there were also gender diversities and freedoms. People who read as women could walk topless with their chests exposed, and men also wore skirts. 
Names were not always necessarily distinctly male or female, and wearing longer hair was also more common for both men and women. Over the course of Thailand's history, much was imported from the West. The school system, including uniforms, came from England. With clearly binary uniforms, Esther was not allowed to wear a female uniform throughout her school and university years. In the state bureaucracy, the division into female and male was adopted with the registration of personal data. But in Thailand, gender reassignment surgeries have been offered and taught at university for many years. Often enough, however, such operations are not affordable, especially for many Katoi who have long been denied access to better paying jobs. There is a research and they give a, an interesting argument. They said that it's because the foreign trans women, they can access to the middle class career, can be a lawyer, can be a doctor. And yeah, when you are in that position, you can get like a good welfare, right? A good insurance, right? But for the local people, local culture, at that time, I mean, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, they are not allowed to, to work in that position, to work in doctor, to work in school, to work as a teacher, to work as a lecturer. At that time, they, they have some job. They have some job, right? Hairdresser or cabaret performer. And yet they are very struggle to, to find money, to save money for the surgery. But the first operations of this kind were actually carried out in Berlin, recounts Bodhi Ashton, whose research focuses on queer studies in Germany. That was also Berlin. That was 1920 at the Institut für Sexualwissenschaft. Um, so Hirschfeld staff there actually offer the first um, gender confirmation surgeries in the world. They don't offer very many of them. And this is also unsurprising. This is uh, a medical procedure in its infancy. This hasn't been done before and therefore won't be done often. But the fact that this is even offered in 1920. And the other thing about the Institute is that, as the name would suggest, it is, it is sort of the, the academic medical institution here. So there are studies that are happening there and people come for surgery or medical intervention and so on. But it also becomes its own touchstone of a queer community. Many queer people traveled there at that time just to find like-minded people of their identity. For Esther, who had already been there, the trip was also very enlightening. Besides the operations, however, the Institute also took on many more functions for the community. And Magnus Hirschfeld, of course, early sexologist of the early 20th century, founded the Institut für Sexualwissenschaft on Tiergarten in Berlin, was also one of the first researchers who began looking into attempting to formalize an idea of what it meant to be to exist outside of a gender binary. Um, so he coined the term transvestite in 1910 in a book entitled Die Transvestiten, and he continued to refine the idea of what that meant to him over the course of the next decade and a half to two decades. I prefer actually to use Hirschfeld's term transvestite to the English term transvestite, because when Hirschfeld came up with this idea, he 
largely had the idea that this is people dressed in the clothing of people of a different gender than theirs. And he saw this fundamentally as a sexual thing, effectively a kink. And this is what the term transvestite in English tends to include. But after 1910, Hirschfeld begins to develop his ideas further, such that ultimately he looks upon the person of a transvestite as being an identity, not a sexual kink. Um, of course, he's still medicalizing this. So he's still looking for medical reasons behind why one would want to live within a, a gender other than that in, to which they were assigned at birth. But nonetheless, this is quite remarkable. And in fact, as of the very start of the 20th century, and especially after the Institute is founded in 1919, Hirschfeld is able to convince the authorities in Berlin that he can issue so-called legitimate transvestiten, they're in very much in scare quotes, legitimate transvestiten, um, with so-called transvestitenscheine, to prove to the police, for example, that they are, again, legitimate transvestiten. Um, it has the wording something along the lines of dieser Person ist im klinischen Sinne transvestit. So, again, that medicalization there, but uh, a sense of legitimization. And this effectively came about because if you were one of Hirschfeld's Transvestiten, for instance, and you were in Berlin, you were liable to be arrested the moment the police saw you uh, for three major reasons. Because firstly, and this usually referred to the cases of people who were assigned male at birth and who would present as female, if you were immediately recognisable as such that you were assigned male at birth. Well, first of all, the idea of the police is that there is only one reason for a man to dress as a woman, and they will conceive this as being a man dressed as a woman, and that is because men have sex with women. And therefore, a man dressed as a woman is trying to get a man to have sex with her. This is against the law. This is against paragraph 175, the so-called sodomy law. But it's not just that. So they don't actually need to catch them in the, in the sexual act. There's a perceived sexual act happening here. But more to the point as well, if they're doing this, particularly out in public on a street, then they are soliciting for sex. That's sex work. That's prostitution. That comes under prostitution laws. That is also illegal. And also, it comes under a, a section of the law referring to Gruber Unfug. So basically, while existing as this person in public, you are disturbing the public peace, and you can be arrested for that as well. Um, so, of course, this is, this is tremendously difficult for, for transvestiten. They can't exist in public without being arrested almost immediately. But it's actually a, a lot of work for the Berlin police as well. And effectively, Hirschfeld approaching the authorities to say, well, look, what if I can tell you that this person is a quote-unquote legitimate transvestite? It actually saves the authorities a lot of bother, which is why after the Institute is founded, there is uh, a much more visible population of, uh, again, transvestite. Um, such that you even have openly 
openly queer bars, mostly in Berlin, um, that also include and advertise as such that they are meeting places for transvestiten. With the Nazi takeover, these places for trans and other queer people were destroyed. The library, the archive, as well as the studies of the Institute were destroyed. Hirschfeld went into exile. So you have a lot of people who, before 1933, might have been able to go to Berlin and experience their lives as they actually are. People who, in our modern lexicon, we may term trans women, for instance, could have gone to Berlin and actually been accredited as being, if not a trans woman, because the terminology didn't exist at the time, then maybe at least a transvestite. Implanations and older on this. But in 1948, that's not possible. And all the way through the existence of the Bundesrepublik, that's until very, very, very recently, that is absolutely not possible. But one thing that happens in the 1950s is that a gynecological clinic is opened in Casablanca and it offers gender confirmation surgery. And so we have this incredible thing, this almost reciprocal movement where prior to 1933, people would come from outside and come to Germany in order to experience their authentic lives. But after the war, you have Germans are being forced to leave the country and go somewhere like Casablanca in order to then receive the sort of surgical intervention they may have been able to get in their own country only 20 years earlier, but cannot anymore. So there is this, this change across a, a relatively, historically speaking, a very short space of time where Germany ceases being the leader in this field, as problematic as, as terming that may be, because it does sort of take out a number of the non-European experiences here. But certainly in its own sense, Germany was a leader in understanding what it meant to not fall within binary gender or sexual norms. And then suddenly this stops and in fact reverses. The history of discrimination, structural oppression and persecution of trans people in Argentina was of course very different from Nazi Germany, but no less brutal. In 1968-1969, the first gay organizations were founded in Argentina. This is how our struggle for more rights began. The group Frente de Liberación Homosexual managed to make the perspectives of gays and lesbians part of the political debate, while trans continued to be equated with prostitution. This also becomes very clear spatially. There was the street in Buenos Aires during that time, the zone of the Panamericana. This place was the streetwalk for the transvestites, which was assigned to them by the police. And, of course, they had to pay bribes. If we look, where are the voices of trans from that time? They are oppressed, their lives controlled and exposed to police brutality. Their struggle was not a political one. They were fighting for basic survival against the police, against the institutions. We bear the marks of violence as victims of institutional violence, arrested, imprisoned, locked up in the clandestine military prisons, tortured or exterminated. 
But not only in the military dictatorship of 1976 to 1983, since the beginning of time and beyond, trans lives have been marked by particularly institutional violence and repression. The federal police have disregarded our most basic rights. Some of our comrades and contemporary witnesses of institutional violence and police repression survived this period with over 700 arrests in police stations and in pretrial detention. They tortured us in the commissariats. They cut off our hair. They cut us with knives. They put us in the yards and doused us with water so that we wouldn't survive. For months they didn't see judges. They were subjected to the violence of the police without the judiciary being involved. For this reason, today in Argentina, many speak of a genocide against trans, because there were really practices aimed at extinguishing the lives of trans and transvestites. As Alba describes in the first part of this podcast series, the new generation of the trans movement in particular gives her hope. They haven't experienced the massive violence themselves. Together with them, she is now fighting from her state position for a constant improvement of living conditions for trans people in Argentina and beyond. It is no coincidence that the younger generations are the non-binary people, people with more fluid gender identities, the people who are advocating for diversity and variety. Well, I feel like this diversity is still what it's all about. It's about finding a response, a response with respect to the transmission of our stories within social and political history. That's one of the fundamental points. But besides that, it's also about accompanying, developing, strengthening the community. It is exactly this, this line, that is so fundamental. I don't think it will be the case in 20 years, but we will have a much more just, fair, diverse world. If we assume that, if we manage to transfer this social agenda to the new generations, and of course, to continue with the vision that they will be able to define themselves and that we will fight so much so our generation also manages to improve their living conditions. I think that's what we have to do today, improve our living conditions. We can show that we can represent or appropriate the state or transform it into a state of law. For Esther and Bodhi, archives and libraries are important anchors for queer presence and identity. In the meantime, some material can be found online, such as in the archives of the University of Victoria, Canada, or the US-based glbthistory.org. In my view, in my view, I think last decade, they are tied to negotiate with the state, right? Um, to allow us to go uniform with the university. But, but yeah, we have to like push ourselves, push our fights forward, like to, to not negotiate with the system, right? Because it still preserves some system that really inequality, really violent in form of like bureaucracy, in form of knowledge that they try to like dominate that. But for mainstream activism, they try to really advocate for the regular part. Yeah, I think it's, it's important, but how to, how we can push forward that we should like advocate for minority in, in our community because we, we not only have like 
middle class people. We have some aging category. We have student category. But yeah, I think it's it's really important to to do more intersectional, right? To in, to more intersectional and yeah, find the voice that's that's more suppressed, that's more dominated, that's more that's less power, that's less resources. Yeah, I will try to to push it forward. Ich hoffe darauf, dass wir in 20 Jahren an einem Punkt sind, wo das wirklich I hope that in 20 years we'll be at a point where it's really just a matter of course to be queer and where it's maybe not even associated with otherness anymore. Where maybe all people also somehow define themselves as a bit queer or as part of the rainbow community because at the end of the day gender and sexuality are fluid and we are all somewhere on a spectrum. This assumption that there are only men and women and hetero and cis-normativity is a big illusion. And ultimately, yes, it does limit all people. I hope that these constraints will fall away at some point, that we will all be queer as a given, to varying degrees, that is. That at some point, you don't need to come out anymore, because why do we have to come out and explain ourselves over and over again? Why can't we assume that all people are simply different? Warum können wir nicht davon ausgehen, dass ja alle Menschen einfach verschieden sind? Scholar and activist Manuela Peek takes her vision of the future for LGBTQI plus people's rights and activism even a step further. And when we look at the rights of nature movement that's growing across the world today, in which rivers, glaciers or just nature have rights, are subjects of rights, constitutionally, right, legally, we start to see something much more interesting than the pronouns, right? Much more interesting than the availability of LGBTQ identities and rights. And it's this notion that we are not separate from nature, right? and it's a closing of that border of the othering, right? The human and the non-human is probably the most problematic. Because if we think about it, All of the dominated peoples, uh, subjugated, colonized, they're made into nature, right? They are commodified as nature. They're transformed into a natural resource, whether it's the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement, um, the rights of nature movement, climate action, feminist movements. It's all about not being treated as a natural resource, an infinite natural resource, But in fact, the problem is not about being treated human. It's the problem is humans treating nature as a resource, appropriating, buying, selling, destroying it. And whether it's a river or bodies, it's the same process of appropriation of life and commodification of life. So I think it's very interesting to look at sexuality, to understand colonization and to see how it commodifies life and a certain forms of life, right, and disciplines life, and to go beyond gender and sexuality, because it's never about gender and sexuality, and to go into this capitalist appropriation of life, and with this separation between humans and nature, the huge challenge now, I think the most important of all is the climate crisis, the sixth extinction, which is a political crisis, an environmental crisis, a democratic crisis, right, of what forms of life count, what bodies count, have rights. And for that, we need to probably go back to other life ways and other social fabrics 
to value life differently. In the third and final episode of the Our Voices, Our Choices series, we'll talk to intersex people about their lives and the legal situations in different countries. We look forward to you tuning in again. This has been a podcast in the series, Our Voices, Our Choices. You can find this and other podcasts of ours on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in the app of your choice. Feel free to rate us and recommend us to others. You can also send us feedback and suggestions at podcast at burr.de. That's podcast at B-O-E-L-L dot D-E. This podcast is a production of the Audio Collective and was produced by Emily Tomey. My name is Kevin Kaners. So long for now.